Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Chaluminati Podcast, episode 121. Ooh, As oh, always, oh. I am one of, I know, it's getting spicy, man. We're almost, we're almost at 125, which is nuts to Might me. Might as well be 1,025 at this point. Yeah, at, this, like, at the rate, yeah. yeah, hell yeah. We got a thousand topics to cover. Easy. Anyway, I'm one of your hosts, Mike Martin, joined by Jesse Cox and Alex Fasciane, the Surfer Bros of LA. I didn't really think of anything ahead of time this time, so the That's Surfer okay. Bros of LA is That's what okay. I got. That's what came off. Yeah, the tip of my tongue. I saw your your like flowery kind of like chill shirt that you're wearing right now, and I was yeah. I had like beach vibes, and that's just where my brain went. That wasn't the greatest choice in today's weather. It was a pretty sticky day, no. and this is like mm. a polyester shirt, but I'm feeling it. Like I'm feeling my look. You know what I mean? <laughs> hey, you're doing a good job carrying that look as well. That's yeah, you look great better. in all. I don't. I can't do a Hawaiian. I can't do it. I look like a you total were dweeb. Off, I, right, fresh out of COVID, you were pulling off Hawaiian shirt after Hawaiian shirt. The That's mystery, not, the paranormal mystery one, was how he was looking so good. I had one, <laughs> one shirt, <laughs> one shirt. And uh, if I pulled it off, great. I um, felt like so many more because it was just so, there was so many things to like about it. You know what I mean? Thanks. Thanks so much. Thank you and so much. Things with so much to like about them. You should head over to <laughs> patreon.com slash pod, which is a fantastic website that keeps money in our pockets, food on our tables, and the show coming out once a week forever until we actually do hit episode 1025 which is going to be in the year 4000 <laughs> uh, according to my calendar um it has all kinds of great short stuff calendar. you can join our discord you can get access to our mini sods immediately there's probably like 30 out there waiting for you if you really just like want to binge there's so much each one's like 15 minutes long you get them and you don't have to wait months for them to come out in batches of four Whenever we don't feel like doing an episode, you know what I mean? It's you say don't feel like, and I say when our schedules don't match up. Yeah, it's the same thing. You know what I mean? Like we could do it and sometimes we don't, you know what I mean? And that's fine because you know what? Self-care. And that's thanks to patreon.com slash pod, which is enabling us to practice self-care on ourselves. You see that? Oh, I self-care frequently. Check, yeah. We're all, we're just a couple of, we're three guys just self-caring in a all Zoom day. call online together. At least twice a day. Yeah. Self-caring. Yeah. <laughs> you can't oh. see it, but Jesse's tongue is flicking He's back and forth. making that weird Stewie Griffin snake tongue. <laughs> <laughs> I realized that I have like weird, creepy, puffy eyes going on. <laughs> like, hey, let me tell you, nothing sexy about what was just happening there. Uh, no, I know a lot of people are like, trying to imagine what was going on behind the scenes. If it wasn't good lady, as the answer. If you were like a lady basilisk, you'd be all up in that <laughs> shit. It's true. It's very true. You know, you could see Jesse and acting in person sometime later this month. Now that it is officially October. October 26th in LA. All you got to do is go to naughtypod.com for more information. Click the poster. And it'll take you yes. to a website that will then take you to another website where you can buy tickets <laughs> on ticketmaster.com. Here's what or I if you found just go out. to our Twitter. I have the only link you need just pinned. So you can just not go only, to that first tweet. And not click only is one it Illuminati, not only is it Scary Game Squad all in the same week, but in the, in between, it's Susie from Game Grumps has a show also. So if you love internet Jesus. people that live in this city, you can go to that theater three nights in a row uh, for a transcendent life experience. Patreon.com slash Illuminati. <laughs> yeah. Transcend your life. Hey, transcend your life. Yeah, transcend your life. Are you ready to transcend your lives today? No. I don't think I want that to be the adjective for where we're headed. (laughs) I I don't know if you're ready. I'm ready to bring you down a three-part road starting this week. Welcome to Halloween. Welcome to October. 
It's Are we finally doing? time. Oh. Is it it's cabbage finally night? time to tackle Ed Gein. I'm sorry, what? Ed Gein. Oh, I thought you said Ed Gee. I was like, what the hell Ed is Gein? an Ed oh, Gee? No, that's a, no, no. I like a weird. That it's like a, Etsy for horror merch. That's what I would go with. No, in the spirit of October. Merch? What is that? Like an ear? Yeah, like Etsy's normal, and then Ed Gee is like spooky goth. Right, it's merch. like edgy, but without the Y. Ed, yeah. Have you been Thank on you. Etsy? Ed it's all spooky. That's what it is. It's just a bunch of witchy stuff that you can buy. <laughs> I, yeah. I'm not on Etsy enough. I wouldn't know. I'm sorry. Um, regardless, though, it's, we got to put this away, and I got to bring you to the inspiring tale of Ed Gein here. I'm I'm the delaying spirit, because it's because it's cause I know it's so I know horrible. <laughs> in the spirit of October, in my never-ending quest to bring depressing subjects to the table all the time, I felt the urge to return to the world of true crime again, and more specifically, the infamous monster who haunted a small town in rural Wisconsin over the course of years. None other than Ed Gein himself. In this upcoming three-parter, we'll very closely examine Ed Gein's life from birth to his eventual death and truly examine what made Gein the monster that we know in history and in pop culture today. It's I, Gein himself that proved to be the inspiration for Psycho, Leatherface, and a few other of more notably horror movie uh, antagonists, Psycho I guess you could call Psycho and Leatherface? And a few others as well, absolutely. What? Yep. I've never heard of Ed Gein. Yeah. What? You've, you've ne- wait, 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 wait. You've never heard of Ed Gein? Never. I've heard of oh Psycho. I've God. heard of Leatherface. I've never heard of Ed Gein. This is good. I am surprised you've never heard well, of Ed Gein. Which is Gein. why I love you said Ed Gein, because I was like, no. I don't know who the hell Ed Gein is. In the world of true crime, this is one of like your cornerstones of people that you kind of learn about early on in terms I of like murder. I don't do that kind of true crime. Like, my true crime. I know, I do. My true crime is like a NBC special report. Like a dateline where the guy's like, and then they went to their house where they found the body. I love that guy. I don't remember his name, but I love that. The old dude with the white hair. Yeah, I, I know exactly the I voice. You're talking. I can like hear it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I'm excited. Then people on Twitter were saying that you th- that you were going to try and like nitpick the story or I something. Can't nitpick nothing. Nitpick. I've never heard of this before. Yeah. No. Yeah. Gein himself is the uh. per- he's the person who was the reason Psycho was kind of created Leatherface and more. A murderer with an utter fascination with his mother and women in general to varying degrees. But beyond the horror, Ed Gein's story is also semi-sad and pitiable. A child brought up in an abusive household with a domineering cult-like religious fanatic of a mother and an abusive father. But even before Ed Gein had been birthed into this world, it seemed like the Gein family itself was doomed from the outset to live lives of hardship and difficulty. So before we get going, let's quickly shout out our main sources for this series. Two books, one by the name of Deviant by Harold Schechter and another called Ed Gein Psycho by Paul Anthony Woods. Um, If you're curious on like which one you'd like to read, uh, Deviant is more about uh, Ed Gein's full on life where Ed Gein Psycho is more about it's a quicker overview of his life and then the pop culture impact he had on the world after he died. The story of Ed Gein doesn't actually begin with Ed Gein himself. Instead, as we begin our series, we jump back an entire generation to Ed Gein's father, George Gein. At the ripe old age of three, before he could even form mostly a cohesive thought, George lost his entire family. Back in 1879, George was living with his family in Coon Valley, Wisconsin. On a particularly overcast morning, George, George's father, 
mother, and their firstborn all boarded a wagon and set out to run some errands in town, leaving George behind. However, it was a journey that they would never finish. The entire family never even arrived at their destination and never returned home. And since this is 1879 and a backwoods family that was mostly isolated from society and kept to themselves, there's very little information or records as to what happened. What we do know is that they would have needed to cross the Mississippi River to get to town as they always had. And on this particular day, the river waters were running high, and it is highly likely and assumed that as they were attempting to ford the river in their wagon, they got caught in a flash flood and immediately washed away. Whatever happened to the family, we don't know. They just went missing and none of their bodies nor their wagon was ever found. So this is the dad's family. This is the father's family. Yep. This is George Gein's family. George Gein being three years old at this particular juncture in his life. Yeah, it's a rough start for a life. From here, George would enter the care of his Scottish immigrant grandparents. And then info on George once again kind of goes quiet, disappearing into the world again as some non-entity something of a personality trait that would stain his entire life going forward. We know after elementary school, he floated between jobs, starting as a blacksmith's apprentice for a few years, then in his early 20s, leaving his grandparents' farm and heading for the closest city he could get to, which ended up being lacrosse. He continued to bounce from job to job, selling insurance at one point, attempting, attempted to be a carpenter at another, worked in a tannery and city power plant, as well as on the Chicago, Milwaukee, and St. Paul Railway. This is just how just I play p- MMOs uh, <laughs> yeah. so far. I want to be a wizard, or I want to be yeah. a knight, and now I want to be a cleric. Yeah, it, it happens. But if it's MMO, it's you're in- also working at the power plant, and you're like, <laughs> you're doing all those other things, too. Yeah. And I'm, like, <laughs> collecting eggs for some fucking reason or some shit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and you're cooking. Yeah. Yeah. His his inability to hold a job likely stemmed from the fact that as time went on, George ended up finding more and more solace within the bottle. And to attain that solace, he found he needed more and more as the world's stresses piled on. It would not be uncommon to find George in the local saloon after getting paid, spending nearly every dollar he just made on getting absolutely shit-faced drunk. And that alcohol only further brought out his anger and despair, cursing and brooding on the terrible fate life had placed before him. And from the early age of a toddler, George Gein's life was filled with tragedy, misery, and a loveless upbringing, as his grandparents did not show much affection for him in his childhood, so he claimed. And it created an angry and pathetic man in its wake, perfect for an individual of high independence and high authority to come and take advantage of. And that particular person's name was Augusta, and that would be George Gein's future wife. Augusta came from a large and industrious family whose dour and demanding patriarch had emigrated from Germany over, uh, in 1870, settling in the same city that George found himself in, La Crosse. When George Gein would ill-fatedly meet Augusta, he would be 24 and she would be 19. It's, and Augusta was a force of a woman. I, what a, like, insane... Way to describe, and then they fell in love. An ill-fated pairing, truly <laughs> the darkest Sorry. of timelines. No, but like it's crazy I would argue that's- that they never even loved each other. I mean, we'll, look, we'll that's, talk about it. That, I, I would wager that is a high percentage of marriages, but that's just <laughs> that's just me. Augusta Gein, a force of a woman. 
A force of a woman. When she's 24 years old, she's already a no, force she's of a woman. No, she's 19. 19. George is 24. Oh. And she's described she's, as a force of a woman. The force of a woman. I'm going to picture physical- Zoe Bell from Kill Bill and Death Proof. <laughs> well, when, when people describe what she looked like at the time, she was described as thick set, a thick set buxom woman with broad, coarse feature, uh, with a broad, coarse featured face permanently fixed in a look of fierce determination and complete self assurance. What was her name? Augusta. Augusta what? Gein. G E I N. I got there should, trying there might to be, see. There's got to be some pictures of her. I've, I mean, there's tons of pictures of Ed Gein and so on. So, Augusta Gein. Older Augusta Gein definitely yep. looks like. A, there she is. Like she has that mother of serial killer look. However, nineteen-year-old <laughs> Augusta Gein looks like you know just a normal yeah. person. Yeah, yeah. A force of a normal person. A force I guess. of a normal person. But for sure, uh, aged up, aged up Gein definitely has that vibe of like my son is fine. He the, definitely oh yeah, didn't just kill everyone. <laughs> just wait. Augusta Gein was a fanatically religious woman. She had been been brought up to obey a rigid code of conduct, which her father had no hesitate, had not hesitated to reinforce with regular beatings. But in the end, Augusta was something of her father's daughter. The way she saw the world was through a lens of anger and hatred. When she gazed upon the world she walked, she was faced with what she saw as a looseness of behavior that seemed shocking and sinful a world in life that sat squarely at odds with her old world values. In turn, Augusta would work extra hard to ensure her life and the lives of those around her would not succumb to the sinful life that was the 1890s. So Augusta became a stern disciplinarian, extraordinarily self-righteous, domineering and inflexible, who would not for a moment bend on her beliefs and her absolute certainty that she was in the right and it was her right to impose them on others by any means necessary. What drew George and Augusta together into an eventual loveless loveless and abusive marriage is kind of unknown. Speculation runs wild, but I think we have a pretty decent idea as to the initial attraction factor. For George, I think he potentially saw the one thing he'd never really had. A family. Augusta had a large and relatively close-knit family. She had six siblings and both of her parents were still alive. As for Augusta, George was the perfect punching bag. He was meek, did what he was told, and Augusta had never really been the target of any men's eyes at that point. They were also of the same religion, Lutheran. The dangers of his alcoholism, while certainly growing, were also well hidden from Augusta at this point. Whatever the case that drew them together, it would be on December 4th, 1899, that George and Augusta would be wed. Instantly, Augusta became kind of head of the household, and their nightmarish marriage took hold. She would shout and bark at George, openly poking fun at his inability to hold a job, constantly calling him a lazy dog or worse. To Augusta, it seemed George had no ambition. In spite of his broad shoulders and blacksmith's muscles, he was weak to her unable to do what was needed, and it would be up to her to accomplish everything if she wanted anything done. And George responded to this abuse by further retreating to the bottle, only to bring about an even more righteous fury when Augusta soon learned of his spending at the saloons. Soon, George became an object unworthy of the least affection by Augusta, 
but divorce was off the table as it was against her highly held religious beliefs. But lest we think only pity of George, he had the occasional violent outbursts as well, particularly when coming home from the bar and being met with a highly pissed off Augusta. In these outbursts, he would corner an corner her and open hand slap her again and again and again until Augusta would curl into a ball and begin to pray intensely, specifically praying for George's untimely demise. As time moved over. Yeah, that was what she prayed for. She would pray to God that George would die. As time moved ever onward, however, Augusta eventually lamented the fact that she had no children. Maybe a child would help bring a light into her life. That, you and know what? Human- that always works. Every right, time. No, yeah. Kids fix everything. Everything. Take that down. <laughs> everything. Yeah, maybe a kid would help bring light into her life. A human that she can raise to be as pure as she oh is. Oh, my God. <laughs> Whatever the case, <laughs> it's important. It's important to know that even to Augusta, sexual matters were seemingly extreme for even her own belief system. Certainly, sex outside of marriage was an abomination, a sin that could never be forgiven. But even within marriage, Augusta saw sex as loathsome, an act only to be done when attempting to have a child. And even then, that act is a chore and despised and she despised every second of it. But it must be done. Carnal relations were a despicable duty of the wife. But Augusta would bite her tongue and invite George to her bed. And the result of that unholy union was a boy a boy by the name of Henry Gein. That would be Ed's older brother. And much like it would be for Ed, Henry's life would be extremely difficult, filled with trauma, and extraordinarily lonely. But once again, the universe decided that happiness was not allowed, and after having their first child, as seemed to be the case for anyone within the Gein family, things got hard again as George lost yet another job. Tired of watching her deadbeat husband unable to hold a job down, she decided there was only one solution. George had to start his own business and work for himself. That'll fix it. She had two brothers that had a successful grocery market in La Crosse, and there was plenty of opportunity for new businesses, and so shortly after, George would open his own small meat and grocery market in 1909. But unsurprisingly, things went to hell rather quickly. While we lack specific details, we do have the Lacrosse City Directors for historical records keeping. We see that in 1909, the store was opened, owned, and operated by George Gein. But only two years later, the ownership of the store changed names to Augusta Gein, and George Gein was relisted not as the owner or even a partner to the business, but a simple store clerk. What? Augusta? Hmm? That's just, it's just weird. Yeah, she moved in, just took over the business after two years. He just couldn't handle it. Was there any record of it failing or? No, it actually lasted until they moved away. Like the the market lasted for years. But I mean, like in that time before she took over. Was she like, you can't do this. The only, yeah, we don't have any records of it failing prior. However, my, my guess is that Augusta was probably doing most of the work while he was drunk being off being somewhere and not being there on time. Hmm. Um, Cause he still worked there. He just lowered. He just was now a clerk. Augusta owning and operating a business was also highly unusual during this time because she was a woman and for a woman, which uh, to own a business spoke volumes to just how useless George was becoming in her mind. Over the course of this time, Augusta and George would also have a second child. 
Augusta felt no close attachment to her firstborn son, saying that it was because he was a boy and men were inherently evil. On August 27, 1906, Augusta gave birth to her second child, another boy. He would be named Edward Theodore Gein. When the doctors told her that she had birthed a second son, she immediately said she felt betrayed and bitter. But she would quickly swallow those feelings as Augusta wasn't one to give in to such things. She swaddled her baby, steeled her resolve, and made to herself a vow that this one would not grow up like the rest of them, like the other men. That Edward Theodore Gein would grow up without the lustful, sweating, foul-mouthed habits of other men who only used women's bodies in disgusting ways. What the she? Sh- what she? <laughs> uh, this is you, Augusta. All is right. a can I? I know we start. I know we started with the dad, yep. and yes. I know we're moving towards Ed. But I really yeah. feel like we should have started with the mom on this one because <laughs> I, I'm going to go out on a limb and say she might be part of the problem. She, well, she might be the whole problem. I mean, depending dude, on how Norman you look Bates, at it. You know what I mean? <laughs> the thing like, is, is, we it. don't we don't know much about her childhood, unlike we know about George's. Other than she, they, they came family from Germany, from, and she hates Germany, like dudes. And they were she's hates dudes. They were close knit, and that her father would beat, like physically beat her if she strayed from the Bible's teachings. Yeah, I don't want to like. I don't want to. I don't want to say nothing, but we should do research into that family because it seems like that's where a lot of this is coming from. Yeah, it's wild. Uh, So she promised to herself that Ed would be different, but in many ways, Ed's life would be no different than those cursed in his family. It would be fraught with hardship, abuse, and eventually murder. His upbringing prior to his school years, we also know very little about, other than some small stories that Ed himself gave during his later life interrogations and interviews. But even then, long into his adulthood, the reverence for his mother was apparent. For instance, when asked about his mother during those interrogations, he would simply say about her, quote, she was like nobody else in the world, before immediately breaking down into violent, sobbing tears. But two stories strike out as incredibly important during Ed Gein's toddler years. A common thing to happen to many who go on to become monstrous killers as they get older is that they end up getting some sort of head injury when they were younger, either dropped as a baby, shoved as a toddler or a child. In this vein, Ed Gein could recall a time as a young child where he was standing on top of the staircase in their old home. Somehow, Ed lost his balance and said he felt himself being pulled or pushed down the flight of wooden stairs. As he tumbled down the stairs, he felt a firm grip on his arm as he was stopped suddenly halfway down, only to look back and see his mother at the top of the stairs, shouting at him and shaking him. He was confused in that moment. He had just tumbled down the stairs and hurt himself, wasn't sure why she was so angry with him. He must have done something wrong in his mind. It's the only thing that makes sense as to why she was so furious with him. But I personally think that he was pushed at that particular moment in his life. I think while Ed truly believed his mother loved him and maybe in some twisted way she believed the same, I believe that deep down she hated him. And perhaps in that moment just felt an urge to hurt or maybe even get rid of one of the things she hated and immediately changed course and regretted it, grabbing him after he potentially hurt himself. Yo, but that's a Mike personal conjecture over the readings that I've done over the past few weeks spoil things for anyone 
But <laughs> this is strong Mr. Robot vibes. This is what? like this is like big Mr. Robot vibes. Oh yeah, I'm like How weird. <laughs> All right, that's, yeah, that's no. Fascinating. Even though it is your opinion, your opinion is <clears throat> yes. very Mr. Robot. The other incredibly clear memory that would sit with Ed for the rest of his life also happened at a very young age. His parents still owned and operated the meat market for a while while he was a child, and behind the market was a windowless wooden outbuilding. From from it, he could hear loud bellowing of animals that he had seen being led inside by his parents. Both Augusta and George forbid Ed from going into the building, and he always obeyed. Until one day... As he was passing by outside and his parents were nowhere to be found, he noticed the door wasn't fully closed, opened just a crack. Curiosity overcame him and he stepped over to peek inside this mysterious building as his parents were nowhere to stop him. What he saw stayed with him until his final days, a memory with incredible clarity. Quote, there, hanging upside down from a chain in the ceiling was a slaughtered hog. His father stood to one side of the animal holding it stead, while his, uh, holding it steady, while his mother slipped a long bladed knife down the length of the belly, pulled open the flaps, reached inside, and began to work at the glistening ropes of its bowels, which slid out of the carcass into a large metal tub at Augusta's feet. Both his parents had, a, had on long leather aprons and spattered blood. And in this very moment, Ed Gein also came in his pants. We... Pardon? <laughs> this baffled looks on their faces. Uh, what? what? Uh, hold on. What now? Yeah. Seeing upon seeing his mother covered in blood and his parents splaying a pig, Ed also apparently uh, ejaculated in his pants at that moment. Like, How do we know? Right that? away? Like, just like, bam? Yes. Like, it was an instantaneous thing. Like, there was no. How do we know that from his confessions? Uh, whether that's true or not, you know, how, how much can, can you believe? It, like, metaphysically. Maybe he may, yeah, maybe metaphysically, yeah, maybe he didn't like, just completely it's the come sensation of like, oh, I mean, maybe that. I, um, don't, I don't know, man. I don't, I don't like it. Point I don't like that either. Neither do I. Like, <laughs> that's that's not cool. Coming. Yeah, no, that's messed up. <laughs> I will point out that this particular point is argued depending on what you read and where you read it. Um, the, just just the coming in his pants part. The, all the, the others all, all agreed happened, but this particular part is argued, and nobody knows for sure if that actually happened or not. However, maybe the more you learn about it again, you'll either see, yeah, I can see that happening, or maybe you don't see that happening. Ed made some sort of sound, though, because both his parents at that moment looked over to the door and saw him. They quickly ran over and ushered him out, scolding him for disobeying and closing the door. The li- their lives at their current home and market wouldn't last much longer, and by age seven, the family would make another, albeit final move to a 195-acre farm in Plainfield known to the locals as Old John, Green, Old John Greenfield's Place. This was a huge move for the family, as not only were they now proper landowners, a symbol of status in some means, but it would be the final move the family ever made. And the land never once fell under George's names, as his reliance on the bottle was making him completely useless and so instead, the, the entirety of the land was put under Augusta Gein's name. Here, Augusta would make herself a perfectionist homemaker. It's like an X-Files her, episode. <laughs> keeping her home in such a clean fashion, it was akin to a museum. And any who would ruin that would meet her wrath. 
on the farm, they would be able to provide for themselves uh, with means with of livestock and crops, both to sell and to feed themselves with. And finally, to Augusta's pleasure, this new farm was extremely isolated, far away from the sinful world and its influence over her children, in a place she could keep them safe and keep herself away from the common folk in which she held a heavy disdain for. They were six miles from Plainfield. And in the days of walking in wagons when families would only head into town maybe once a month, this was an enormous distance between them and the near society. The Geens were surrounded with nothing but meadows, marshland, scattered clumps of trees, and acre upon acre of pale, sandy soil. And by the age of eight, Eddie had already decided for himself that his mother was infallible, even considering her as perfect as God even though he admitted to himself that thought was sin. To him, she was the only one that could save him, keep him safe from the outside world's dangers. Ultimate Buster Bluth. (laughs) Yes, yes. That she spoke the only truth, and it was her that could guide him through this uncertain world. Unfortunately, the world couldn't be hidden forever, and soon after moving, Ed Gein had to begin grade school at Rosha Cry Grade School. Here to the evils of the world, here the evils of the world would present themselves to Ed Gein in full force, the evils of children. When it came to his studies, Eddie did fine, not particularly special or notable, but passed his courses and would eventually go on to graduate eighth grade at the age of 16. He loved to read and voraciously ate up what magazines he could along with books, but magazines were his favorite. It wasn't the academics that brought issues, but instead the social element of being around a bunch of kids for really the first time in his life that brought the difficulties. Eddie was hopelessly socially awkward. While all the kids around him seemed to naturally connect and form relationships, chatting about chores or dinnertime gossip or what event they were excited for, like, and this is true, the upcoming donkey derby at Plainfield Auditorium, Eddie would sit alone, merely eavesdropping. None of those things were things he could relate to. I'd go to a donkey derby, though, personally. What I think donkey that derby sounds like, sounds like there's got to be some animal abuse happening somewhere. <laughs> God, in, in, in 1909, especially. Yeah, uh, yeah, you're not right. You're not wrong. Occasionally, though, Eddie did come close to making a friend. And usually, excited by his newfound budding friendship, Ed would go home and tell his mother all about the person that he had just met wherein Augusta would instantly begin raising objections to the, to the forming of the friendship. Maybe the boy's family had a bad reputation, or she heard the father was a known adulterer, or that the mother had held a dark secret, or the family came from the questionable virtue. How in the world could Eddie hang out with someone like that? The influence they could have on him could be forever damaging. And usually, Ed would then normally run to his room, blubbering and crying, and the next day at school... He would simply ignore and avoid the potential friend he almost made. And just like that, that budding friendship would come to a close. From the other students' point of view, Eddie was a little strange. Certainly, they had no idea that a lurking, violent psychosis was growing as each year passed, but still they recognized that something was a little off about Ed. Beyond his obvious social difficulties, classmates described Ed as quiet, increasingly withdrawn. When he tried speaking with others, he would constantly uncomfortably shift around and he could not maintain eye contact for much longer than a couple seconds. He had, quote, an odd and lopsided grin that he seemed to always wear. 
Even when the conversation was something as gross as a deer hunting accident that had killed a neighborhood man named Eugene Johnson or old man Beckley's heart attack, Ed had a habit of quietly laughing at weirdly inappropriate times. As Why though was he, was he in listen- like episodes of like the Andy Griffith show? <laughs> what, is, what is going on there? <laughs> listen, these are the inspirations for the Andy yeah. Griffith show. Okay. Uh, yeah, he was laughing along like some weird, strange private in joke was being told to him during these times. Occasionally during class, female classmates would turn around only to catch Eddie's dead, emotionless gaze locked onto them with an intensity that even at that young age, they said made them feel unclean and violated. When boys were being boys and discussing things like sex or any jerking off or whatever, Eddie would turn beet red and back away as fast as he could so he couldn't hear any more of what was being discussed as it was a sin. Ever see your mom slaughtering a pig or anybody? (laughs) Yeah. Walking into that circle. Anybody uh, come in their pants from seeing their mom slaughter a pig or. Yeah. Eddie was nervous, quiet, soft, and made nervous hand fluttering motions when he talked. Poor Ed also had a small, fatty, lumpy growth over his left eyelid that caused it to droop slightly lower than his right, which earned Eddie the nickname at school. Saggy baggy eye. Oh my god. Saggy baggy eye, dude. Come on, that's brutal. (laughs) Kids being kids teased him about relentlessly. Yeah, saggy baggy eye. That's just uh, that's just the name they gave him. Unfortunately, all this ever did for Ed was prove that his mother was correct, that the world is cruel and cold, and confirmed everything that he had been taught growing up. Outside the safety of their home and his mother, the world was a wicked place. Life at home was no better, however, and honestly only grew worse. The farm was clearly not ideal, and no matter how much the family worked the land intended to his soil, the crops grown were barely enough food to provide the, sip, the family substance, never mind making any profit. The labor was intense and backbreaking, leading George further and further into the dark recesses of the bottle as despair slowly took hold. And George seemed to hate Eddie. During his angry, drunken outbursts, he he frequently relented how feminine Ed had become and how much of a mama's boy he was. And that hatefulness ran deep. By the time Ed had become a teenager, his father had become all but a useless lump in the house, barely able to move or speak, needing to be taken care of day in and day out. The alcohol may not have fully killed him, but the way he was living by this time was hard to call it really a life at all either. Augusta was now completely in control of the home with her two boys in tow to help, and her own religious righteous fury toward the outside world only grew larger. With daily frequency, Augusta would take the newspaper photos and magazine illustrations to provide evidence of this so-called evil. She knew the way they dressed with short skirts, powders, and lipstick, that they were all tainted, fallen creatures, and the women of Plainfield she preached to her sons harbored the worst of all women. Yeah, like the small town out in Wisconsin had the worst woman in the world. <laughs> it's kind of a weird thought to have because you know, it's, it's, you it's like when like people say that Earth is the York center of the something. universe. You know what I mean? Yeah, Plainfield, yeah. Wisconsin, just the worst, scand- most scandalous woman. Each day and night, she would read from the Bible, but she had a favorite passage that she had committed to memory. And with her eyes squeezed tight and her voice quivering, she would recite the following. And honestly, this very much is. It fits Augusta well. The lips of a strange woman drop honey, and her mouth is smoother than oil. 
but her latter end is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her butthole? Now, huh? Her butthole? Her butthole? <laughs> <laughs> that's what you're, that's what. Her butthole? Her, what's her, her latter butt- end? Her latter end is bitter as a wormwood. What is that? Not. I imagine, you know, vagina might be what they're aiming at. Her butthole. <laughs> Her butthole. I don't butthole? think of the vagina as the end. I'm just she saying. Got sharp like ass, she got a sharp ass butthole. Her butthole is uh, as sharp as a two-edged blade. <laughs> I just, it's just, I just took issue with the phrasing. Yeah, that's fine. I, you know, I, I like where you went with that. Uh, anyway, continuing. <laughs> now, therefore, my sons, hearken unto me and depart not from the words of my mouth. Remove thy way far from her and come not not and come not night the door of her house. For why shouldest thou, my son, be ravished with a strange woman and embrace the bosom of a stranger? What, my son, and what, O son of my womb, and what, O son of my vows? Give not thy strength unto women, nor thy ways to that which destroyeth kings. What the shit? It's like <laughs> Robert Browning. What, you, what the hell? <laughs> that is the, the passage that she had committed to memory and would recite to her boys almost every night. Before blowing him away and eating some big kahuna burger. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Uh, yeah, it, it's 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 all about don't sleep with women, basically. Just don't don't sleep with a strange woman. Um, yeah, I mean, know, message received. God damn. Yeah. Wait, After so reciting the, that, did the older brother turn out okay? We're gonna. You, you'll see. We're not done yet. We'll, I'm we'll rooting for the older brother. Henry. I don't know what happened. The rest of them screw him. You just want to be like. He that. started a hot dog cart in San Diego. Yeah, and he's still alive today. <laughs> uh, after reciting that passage, Augusta would grab both of her son's hands and make them swear to her that they would keep themselves uncontaminated by women, and if their lusts became too much to handle, even the sin of Onan was preferred to the vileness of fornication. Sorry, what? Jerking off. Go oh, jerk off. I thought the sin of Onan. Sin of dick. Onan? O-N-A-N. The sin of Onan. Yeah, don't, O-N-A-N? Don't just, I'm looking at up. I'm going to go, I'm going to go Onan myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you just like, <laughs> just if you got so horny that you were just, you just, you just, the vagina, it calls to you, just go beat off first. My just, own, you know, my God Onan forgive face. you jerking off. Yeah. You, you make your Onan face. Wait, <laughs> yeah, I guess he's looking up. Whoa! Whoa! All right. How do you spell that? O-N-A-N. Let me just Onan. say, let me just say this whole Onan thing is, look, don't get me started on the Bible, because literally I'm reading, here is just one of the first, Genesis 38, 8 through 10, here you go, enjoy. Uh, <laughs> lie with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as brother-in-law to produce offspring for your brother. That's must. Pre- that's preferred over jerking it. So you know, <laughs> adultery. I don't. I, I don't know. Is, is the brother still alive? I don't know any of this. But does that count we'll as adultery if you do it this way? I don't way? know how any at this of it particular works. point, none of them are married. Neither of them are married at this particular point in the story. You, I'm talking so. about the Bible. You're talking about. Oh, oh! I'm talking about Eddie Gein here at this particular point. Eddie but yeah, Gein. no. She'd rather you do Onan. She'd rather you perform perform Onan than um, Onan than, the Barbarian. Uh, Onan the Barbarian. And while Eddie bought it all, Eddie bought everything that she put forward, hook, line, and sinker. Henry, however, did push back lightly, occasionally, on a few notable occasions. He did his best 
to attempt to socialize with the local ladies. But his mother still always won out in the end when she found out. And unfortunately, Henry would never go on to marry anyone in his lifetime attached to his mother being even attached to him a little too much. To so he even he, he was like the non murderer type of Norman Bates. Yeah, you're yeah, you're we're getting more. Henry's going to come up a little bit more as we move forward, oh, actually, at this okay. point. But dear Eddie's life was about to take a turn far too familiar to his father's early life. And tragedy was about to strike Ed rapidly and without much mercy. The first blow may have been the only blow on the surface. The first blow might have been only a blow on the surface is what I meant to say. As George Gein finally succumbed to his health issues brought on by years of abusing alcohol and passed away on April 1st. 1940. This is what to die on April Fool's Day. (laughs) Yeah, I know. This is what his obituary read, and this is going to be important for a little later. George Gein, 66, was born August 4th, 1873, and passed April 1st, 1940. His mother and father and little sister preceded him in death. They were gone to town, and he was staying at home because of the high water, as it was raising in the Mississippi River. The father, mother, and sister never returned, leaving him an orphan boy. The flood occurred in Vernon County a good many years ago. He lived in La Crosse until 1914, then going to Plainfield, where he since resided. He is survived by his wife and two sons, Henry and Edward. He had uh, sufferance. He had sufferance. God, I can't get this word out of my mouth. Try that. He had suffered considerably for the past three years, but his sufferings were eased by his faith in God. He was a good husband and father and will be missed by all who knew him. So that was his that was in the newspaper. That was his obituary in the newspaper for George Gein after he died at the ripe age of 66. I the death of their fault. I need you to know I I deep read into Onan. Yeah, how um, you feeling? I'm not feeling not feeling weird, feeling real weird about (laughs) About a lot of things. Yeah. Um, you want to tell us a little bit about no, it? No, not really. Just, you go ahead I'm anyway. just going to go out on a limb and say, uh, people have always been weirdos. <laughs> like you think the weird effed up stuff that you're into is like modern. Like, Oh, people weren't like this. No, people be like that thousands of years ago. So what did you learn, Jesse? Just people be freaks. People be freaks. <laughs> even back in the day. Look at this, this podcast is always marked as explicit content. So you're welcome. People Bye. be freaks. No, I'm, look, I'm just I don't want to talk about the spilling of seed. It's weird. <laughs> Especially when it's talk about, about seed. Why do you have to phrase it? Like, why do you have to phrase it? Like that is Robert how it's Frost. phrased here. And then he got off. It's like. The spilling of seed upon thine floor. It's like, mm, I'm all right. <laughs> it's, it's, it's masturbation. It's, uh, I'm all right. Uh, it's weird. It's weirder now. Yeah, because it says something like it's spill, like, it's like spilling his seed onto the floor. Up in here. This is weird. Yeah, it's like it's weird. It's about jerking off. It's a little incelly. Is all I'm saying. It's a little. It's a oh, little yeah. much. Oh, a hundred percent. But it's all about jerking off. Go jerk off. Don't sleep with a lady. How dare you? The death of their far- father arguably, arguably did more good than it did bad, as the burden of taking care of George was lifted from the family, and his abusive and alcoholic tendencies no longer held much power over them. Something that I didn't really talk too much about, because this is a, we could talk about a bunch of it, is George did regularly also physically beat Ed, just for the way Ed carried himself, for being too effeminate, 
for being weak, he saw him. George beat him relentlessly. With the death of their father, the boys would take on a variety of odd jobs to help pay for the farm where Eddie would would find his calling in dealing with children as a babysitter. See, people his own age made him feel uneasy, but children Ed found he could easily relate to. He would have, they would all, the, the kids loved being babysat by Ed Gein. He would play fun games with them. They would laugh. He would chase them. And by all accounts, other than him having a slightly ragged and dirty appearance, he seemed to be an amazingly good at babysitter. Perhaps unsurprisingly, Henry was the one of the two brothers who was seen as the hard worker and dependable type. For that, Eddie had a deep admiration of his brother. It was Henry who taught Eddie how to fish, do some construction, and more as they grew up after all. But time passes, and while all brothers argue and bicker, one particular disagreement would sit with Eddie forever. You see, while Henry pushed back against Augusta slightly growing up, Eddie was still under the impression that Henry was as in love and devoted to their mother as he was. This, however, was not true. And while Henry never outwardly spoke ill of Augusta, he would often bring into question the closeness of Ed and Augusta's relationship, saying that perhaps it was a little too close and he was worried for the hold that she had over Eddie. This this new implication, this new implied criticism that spewed from the lips of his brother shook Eddie deeply, and it was something that he would never forget. A short four years after his father's passing, the Gein family would suffer another tragedy. On Tuesday, May 16th, 1944, Ed's older brother, Henry Gein, passed away. Yo! Now the, now, the details of his passing are vague at worst and muddy at best. On that fateful day, both Henry and Ed headed into the marshland near their farm to battle an out-of-control brush fire. How the fire started is one of one of the hotly debated facts about Ed's history. Some say the fire had started accidentally, while others said the boys had gone out to burn away some of the brush on purpose and simply lost control. Eddie would later claim that it was Henry's idea and that, quote, I coaxed him and tried to keep him home, but he just kept at me till I took him there. At the time of the fire, however, newspapers claimed it was Ed's big idea. Regardless of how it started, though, it was this fire that would be Henry's end. As Eddie told the story, a strong wind had suddenly blown up and the fire quickly spread and got out of control. He quickly moved to one end of the marsh and struggled to extinguish the fire before it reached a stand of pine trees on the perimeter of the field. And he succeeded. After barely putting that fire out in time, he went back for his brother but could not find him in the smoke and the darkness as the sun had already set. Eddie left the forest after inhaling much too much smoke and immediately ran for help, returning with Sheriff Engel and two neighbors nearby as a small search party. Now, this is where things kind of get a little weird. It's already so shady. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> once he brought them back to the forest, to, with the, once he returned to the forest, rather, with the search party, Ed led them into the forest, but not just to where the fire had begun. He led them straight to where Henry Gein's body was laying face down in the dirt. A few things stuck out immediately to those who came across the body. First, there were no signs that Henry had been injured by flame, despite being stretched out across a scorched piece of ground. His clothing was covered in soot, but otherwise fine. 
and the exposed parts of his body were also completely free from burns. When the men who were there went over to examine the body closer, they noticed what seemed to be some weird bruises on Eddie's, I mean, on uh, Henry's head. When they brought up all this up to Eddie, uh, that they that they thought he didn't know, and that when they brought up to Eddie that they didn't that they thought Eddie didn't know where his brother was because that's what he claimed. Yet he still led them directly to Henry's body. Ed's response to them was simply, "Quote, funny how that funny how that works, doesn't it?" End quote. In the end, Ed was not found guilty of any crime. End quote. It was determined by the medical authority present that the death was due to asphyxiation. After investigation by the coroner, it was decided that an inquest was not necessary as foul play did not enter into the death of Mr. Gein, end quote. Now, this is a huge, this whole Henry's death is a hugely like talked about topic in the world of true crime. Everybody probably wants this rises, to be him, right? Is is this Ed's first kill? Yeah. Is this is this Ed killing his brother? What was the motive behind the kill? Was it simply because Henry didn't like Augusta or brought up all these arguments against why Ed and, and Augusta should be close? Um, moreover, why if he did kill him, why would he bring him right back to the body? Like, why would you not pretend that you don't know where the body is? Because Ed wasn't a stupid guy. He was an average intelligence individual who got through school fine. He wasn't, you know, stupid. Um and, and people still kind of have it up in the air, whether like this is Ed's fault or not, because it is possible he maybe uh, like barely missed the body in the smoke and the darkness, didn't see it there and like could not breathe anymore and left the forest and the bruises on his head were maybe he whacked his head on some trees or something as he went down. Who knows? Or he could have whacked his brother over the head, left him unconscious to suffocate in the smoke. And then went back. We don't know. It we sounds like there know. is the potential for some sort of like Greek tragedy esque, like favor of the mother, Game of Thrones type shit. Yeah, there's there is there's room for both arguments, and unfortunately, we'll never know. I I mean, you know, after my reading, my personal belief, I don't. I I I I think I'm like sixty forty in that I don't think he killed his brother. I don't think he did it. I just, I think he just missed the body and was running for his life after he couldn't breathe anymore. Uh But I could be convinced the other way with just like a single piece of evidence or something. It's weird. It's really, really weird. (coughs) Regardless, in the end, Ed was not found guilty. Like I said, no matter how his death took place, Augusta Gein was now all of Ed's and only Ed's. But fate continued to frown upon the Gein's And shortly after Henry's death, Augusta fell ill. Eddie never once left her side as she fought through this illness over the course of months. And by mid-1945, after months of being bedridden, Augusta was finally ready to try and walk again. Ed actually stood nearby and offered her his hand to help, in which Augusta replied, quote, Move away, boy. I can manage myself. And she struggled to her feet. Elated to see his mother walking again, Ed smiled. The house had fallen very quickly into disrepair, and the farm itself, with only Ed to take care of it, also fell by the wayside. However, winter was approaching, and they needed straw to feed the animals if they were going to make it through. So they went to their nearest farming neighbor, and Augusta, uh, though Ed told her to stay home, Augusta insisted that she go along. When they arrived, there was a site that Ed took in and also committed to memory forever. The owner of the farm, the the father of the farm, whose last name I actually just left out 
accidentally, uh, was seen on his front lawn beating his pet puppy. The dog the was fuck? yelping and crying for help while the man relentlessly punched and kicked at it. Damn. Augusta got into a fight, screamed for them to stop while Ed simply watched. However, Augusta, upon returning home after getting that straw, only seemed to have a hang up about the wife, about how poorly she was dressed and how loose her manner seemed to be and all these other things that she had gone on and on about over the years. But that her health would not last long. And on December 29th, 1945, at the age of 67, Augusta Gein passed away from illness. While George's obituary was rather polite and standard fare, Augusta's obituary was quite different and perhaps spoke of how the town saw her as a whole. It very simply read, Mrs. Augusta Gein died at the Will Rose Hospital on December 29th of cerebral brain hemorrhage. The body was brought to Gout Funeral Home where services were held December 31st by Reverend C.H. Wise officiating. She is survived by one son, Edward, who lives on the home farm southwest of here. And that's all her obituary said in the newspaper. Damn. While it, was at a, while it was a time of celebration for people around the world celebrating holidays with Christmas having just passed and the New Year's around the corner, for the very first time, Ed Gein found himself utterly and completely alone. He would inhabit that farmhouse until he would be arrested for his crimes many, many years later. And the very story of Ed Gein through Plainsville was only just now beginning to build. And that's where we'll pick up next week. What? With Ed Damn. Okay. Part two. <laughs> All right. That truly was and like a movie. That's like a movie first act. That's like a. Yeah. It's a lot of like character motivation of like the like classic kind. That's fucking wild. It's important to know Ed Gein's history, too, because I would argue that Ed Gein isn't a serial killer because he didn't go on and kill like tons and tons of people. And his motive wasn't getting off on murdering these people. And we'll talk about it when it gets on. He's a murderer. I think he's a, just a traumatized person who clearly has mental health issues um, that ended up just being broken by his family because everything that we went over here in this episode today is the foundation for Gein's actions moving forward. His mother, specifically his mother, and everything she taught him. Um, you know, we're going to learn all next episode about how he had, he kept his, while the farm fell apart, he kept his mother's room pristine clean and perfection while the rest of the house would fall apart and become disgusting over the course of all his many, many terrible, terrible crimes, which will, again, we'll talk about as we go on freaky, but it is all uh, the, the cornerstone of Ed Gein is his childhood through being like in his early twenties to now. So that's what we're going to pick up next time, guys. Uh, Welcome to October, the first week of a, of a, of a fun true crime story and some true despair to follow. I hope you're all excited. Yeah. Yeah. I, good Lord. <laughs> yeah. Huh? I'm glad you looked up the sin of Onan, honestly. I'm not worth it. Mm. Worth it just for that, <laughs> to be honest. It's way more complicated gives, than you think. It is like. It also gives me more meaning to the item in Binding of Isaac called Onan's Curse. The idea of that item is every time you hit an enemy with a tear, your tears get stronger until you miss. And if you miss and your tear hits the floor, your strength resets to zero. Uh, so as long as you're always hitting your mark, you're always getting I mean, stronger. The whole thing is the dude was like, it was like, hey, go bang this lady. And he's like, well, I if I get her pregnant, those are my kids. That's my bro's kids. So he would pull out every time. And that is like, they were like, what are you doing? That is a sin. And he's like, I'm, 
saving my ass is what I'm doing. They're like, you have cursed yourself. <laughs> oh, it's crazy. Wow. So, <laughs> well, that's uh, it's your education for Ed Gein part one. Next week will be Ed Gein part two. And then the week after that, we'll wrap up with the final episode of Ed Gein part three. If you haven't yet, Head over to the yeti.com slash collections slash Chaluminati. Slash Onan curse. <laughs> slash oh, Onan. No, no, don't add Onan. Don't, don't slash add Onan, Onan to anywhere. <laughs> Just don't. Yeah, don't add Onan to any URL you plug into the Internet. That is not going to end well for you or anybody in the room with you. Onan. Don't do it. Um, and beyond that, thank you guys for the support. Um, make sure you drop us a review. Follow us on our socials. Hey, we have an Instagram now. Go over to the Instagram. Instagram.com slash Chaluminati pod. Uh, just follow us everywhere you can, and we will see you in three weeks on October 26th in the Region Theater in L.A. for our Chaluminati Live. Go buy tickets, ChaluminatiPod.com, or go to our Twitter and uh, click on the link in the pinned tweet. Go buy yourselves what little tickets are left, and we'll see you guys there. And uh, We're off to do a mini-sode. Bye. 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 Anyway, me and my wife were sitting outside indulging on our porch one night, enjoying ourselves. I needed to go to the bathroom, so I stepped back inside, and after a few moments, I hear my wife go, Holy shit, get out of here! So I quickly dash back outside, and she's looking up at the sky in awe. I look up too, and there's a perfect line of dozen lights traveling across the sky.